This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Well, and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob here, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we invest in early stage companies. My guest for today's show, I'm very excited to have, he's joining me via Zoom, is Avedon Ross. He's the founding partner of Root Ventures. And previously, he designed industrial robots for the Food Network, and also as the CTO of Sim Group, where he focused on industrial investing, and also worked before that as an engineer and embedded application developer at Excite at Home. Avidan, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to see you. So why don't we just start out? I, I, I'd just love to hear... How are things going for you through the pandemic right now? I, I see you in the office and just curious how it's affected you and, and Root Ventures. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it's, been, it's been an interesting uh, waves of up and down. Um, so we got a really early glimpse of it uh, because we do so much investing in deep tech, supply chain, hardware, manufacturing. So when China was first being impacted and caught the first wave of COVID, um, we were hearing about it because a lot of our startups were dependent on the supply chain that was impacted. Uh, with Wuhan shutting down and with just a, a, a very quick contracting of, of work in China. And so we were having that conversation pretty early, but I could tell you that we were not quite prepared for what the spring had for us. Um, I think in retrospect, We've since actually looked at the quite, quite a bit of silver lining. Um, so we do a lot of investing focused on B2B and industrial. And these are customers and companies where the expectation was that the only thing fighting a startup in getting adoption in a big customer was the status quo. It was maintenance of the status quo. And COVID demonstrated to all of these big legacy players that the status quo was extremely fragile. And, you know, I think it's now been said many, many times, but uh, COVID really accelerated technological adoption for a lot of these companies because they realized that their status quo was extremely fragile. And I think it's been exciting for a lot of our companies. You know, we've had one or two companies that have had a hard time just, uh, you know, with travel, either they're travel related or somehow need to get out there. But I think for us personally, um, it's been, you know, not as much fun. We don't get to hang out with people and like have that really exciting Yeah, that's the dialogue. toughest part, isn't it? Actually not seeing people. I mean, you see people on video, but it's nowhere near as much fun as when you're in a room with somebody or outside with somebody or a coffee shop or any number yeah. of places. Yeah, I miss, I miss so, the, so, um, the dialogue of like that building ideas with somebody, right? When you're sitting with somebody and you get excited about something and then they get excited about something, you're able, your energy actually is, is, is a multiplier. Whereas I think on Zoom, you know, excitement levels are a little bit harder because there's sort of like someone holds the microphone, then passes the microphone and passes the microphone. And with a group of five or six people, it's really hard to have that sort of collaborative spark and energy of thinking through complex problems. Yeah, so definitely want to hear about a couple of your companies that have really benefited from COVID. But before we do that, could you do a quick elevator pitch for what is Root Ventures? Absolutely. So Root Ventures is a early stage seed fund focused on deep tech run by a group of engineers who are looking for technical risk. So we love investing in companies where the first 18 to 24 months of their business is proving that something is even possible. Um, and, and by possible, we often end up investing in interdisciplinary engineering problems. So that would be machine learning, computer vision, AI, hardware, robotics, industrial automation. And you know, one way to look at it is we are looking for companies that are either built by a deep engineering team or for a deep engineering team. We like to call it hard tech, not as in hardware, but hard as in difficult. Well, it's very interesting what you're saying because it sounds like the initial risk that you're trying to burn off is initial technical risk, whether something can be done, whether it's affordably, et cetera, 
Whereas conventional wisdom with a lot of startups is, hey, let's go in and burn off market risk to make sure that somebody wants the product. Yeah, no, absolutely. And our thesis there is that um, you could ask the market pretty quickly. If, if this magic pixie dust was available, would you buy it? And for all of them, they say, yeah, absolutely, but it doesn't exist. And so for a lot of these companies, um, it's, it almost feels obvious that the market is not risky. Um, it's just the ability to deliver on that product is so hard and, and, and the risk is so high. Well, you were an investor in Shaper, which was a, a, an internet connected smart router. And was that an yep. example of what you mean where you're, you check to see whether you can build a router, for example, and this is for like home woodworking or industrial work woodworking, where you get the benefits of a CNC machine or a computer numerically controlled machine, but at the cost point or maybe something a little above what it would cost for somebody at home to build different things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, our, our basic take was if you could walk up to a, somebody who builds at home and said, I can make you far more accurate and far more capable and you will be able to build more higher quality product at home, um, all with, with a handheld product that has intelligence. It, it almost is magic. The reality is, is that when you showed somebody a demo video of the first prototype, so the team had developed this uh, at, at MIT as part of their PhD thesis. So they had, they had created a working, works-like prototype that was definitely not ready for mass consumers. And you would show this video to people and just watch their jaws drop. They tried to like look behind the curtain and say, well, how are you cheating? How are you cheating? What's the cheat on this? And you're like, no, 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 it's not cheating. It's, it's amazing technology that's only recently available of computer vision and a really complex mechanical system. And so when the product was available for sale, it was an interesting situation where, um, you know, they went to, they went to a fair number of VCs early on and, the VCs sort of were like, I think that there's a market risk here. And the truth of the matter is there aren't many VCs who have the empathy of a woodworker. And so most of them said, <laughs> oh, I think you'll probably, you'll probably do a couple million in sales in your first year. And when the product was finally available for sale, they did a multiple of that in their first month. And it was just this situation where the market never had the opportunity to use a piece of technology like that because the tech didn't exist. And once it was available, That's another it was sold example. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have uh, another good example, but with all the companies that you've backed and you've incubated over time, but what's the one where you came in and you wondered whether it was possible and then you proved out the technical risk that might have surprised you the most or was the most satisfying? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I, there, there are so many there. I think what we end up leaning on quite a bit are things that you know, average, the, the average person at home could contemplate. So we end up talking a lot about hardware and robotics. Um, and so, you know, in the hardware space, we have companies like Creator, which is a hamburger making robot. Um, at the end of the day, to, to be able to produce a machine that can output ultra high quality hamburgers for the price of a Big Mac with no human interaction, giving like all organic ingredients is, is pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and it took quite a bit of time. Um, we also have other investments in similar spaces in, in other food service that we're not, we're not talking about those, but I could tell you that we have a team at, uh, that came out of SpaceX and you would say like, what are rocket scientists and engineers doing building food robotics? And the yeah, reality doing is it's flipping burgers. Yeah. Right. It's really, really hard to do. And, um, you know, I think we've also, we've seen that with agricultural robotics, where the idea that you could have a robot driving up and down rows of strawberry fields or grapevines and identifying high quality fruit, picking it and doing it at a rate that is at human or better, and actually providing a higher quality product to the end consumer. It's just, it's a lot of engineering work. It's a lot of engineering work and, and people just when they see it at the end, they just take for granted that it was done and they don't realize how complex it is to get there. So you've had a, a pretty eclectic background, some things that you've worked on and was curious, how did your path into 
venture capital come about? And really specifically, where'd you grow up? And maybe talk about that and how that might have informed things. Yeah. So, you know, like everybody at the team at Root, uh, I, have an, I have an engineering background, technical background. And I, I grew up in Los Angeles and was very lucky to get a job answering uh, tech support phone calls at a startup in LA in the 90s. And um, at, at some point, they gave me a data entry job, and I discovered that I, that I actually had access to How old were you? I was 16. I was really 15, but they tell me I have to say I was 16 because it was illegal for me to be working there at 15. Um, <laughs> but, but it was a summer job. I knew how to, I knew how, I, you know, I was active on BBSs. I was very, very active with email and scripting at home. I was writing some pretty, um, um, yeah, I guess it's probably like statute of limitations has passed at this point. So I was writing, I was writing viruses oh, yeah. and bots when I was 15. So <laughs> I, was a, I, was a, I was a bit of a troublemaker. Um, and, and so when I was answering these, did tech you actually calls, commute to this job? Would you, yeah, so would you 16, actually drive to it or ride your bicycle or how would you get to it? I, I drove there. It was next to my high school. Um, so I would ditch class and go answer tech support calls. And, uh, <laughs> the, and it was amazing because like, I think the tech industry has forever had one of the, the greatest features of the tech industry is it's a pay, pay it forward industry. And when I was there as a 16 year old, everybody wanted to help me be the best person I could become in terms of technology. So I, they gave me a data entry job and I found access, like direct access to the database and like pulled myself up like the, the help files and, and learned how to write a SQL query that just did the data entry for me because it was a lot of repetitive data entry. And I was done with the job after a day and they basically pulled me aside and said, you don't need to answer phones anymore. You're gonna become a programmer. And that was my path to becoming a software developer. It was just like people were excited for other people being excited to build. Did you ask him for a raise at that time also? I wasn't sophisticated enough for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I kicked my, look, the reality was I was the only person making real money. I was Stock the one options. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, did they at least give you a t-shirt or something like that? Yeah, no, I got a t-shirt. I got, I got, I got a t-shirt and, and I ended up, you know, it was, it ended up making my, the rest of high school and college an experience where I was both in school studying computer science but also out of school getting professional experience engineering. And I just realized that I loved building things. Um, I would say the rest of my path wasn't exactly, um, you know, the, the traditional path to get to venture. It, it all sort of, you know, my, my last experience before venture was actually being the CTO of a large private equity firm. And that private equity firm was doing things that range from like real estate to construction, to agriculture, mining, water, wind, solar, just, big expensive industries where the feeling was was that your capital was your 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 axe to wield and i kept on looking at these old industries saying why isn't somebody using technology to change these industries and this is sort of where the root ventures thesis came up the the reason was because the investors who were investing in these spaces were unwilling to take on technical risk in the early outset of any business so there was no, no one funding a startup to say, go after the air conditioning industry, go after the automotive industry, go after construction, go after mining. But here we are and we see Nest and we see Tesla and we see all of these companies that were able to go after big old industries. And that was my, that was the, you know, the star I saw and, and went chasing. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conyvier, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132. I am on Zoom right now with Avidan Ross, the founder of Root Ventures, and we're talking about starting companies and his path into venture capital. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to start a firm? Was it a, was it a steady path? Was it, Hey, I'm enjoying being in the investment world as CTO at this private equity group. And then you started to do angel investing or was there more of a step function in how you approached it? Yeah. It, so I saw at the, at the, at the private equity firm, I saw these opportunities where the first startup started pitching us to go into these old line industries. Actually, they were going after vehicle telematics. And I went to my partners and I said, I think that all of these big old businesses we're buying are 
exposed and startups are going to come in and compete in this space. And as you can imagine, a firm of that size is not going to write a one to $2 million check. And that's what the startup needed. So I turned to them and said, you know, I have to make the hard decision here. I want to be helping these entrepreneurs build the next generation of company. So I left and um, as a part of the agreement, I gave them sort of a verbal non-compete. And I said, I won't invest for a year, which is where I got into a bunch of fun life experiences, building robots for the Food Network and writing a book about coffee and just having a little bit too much fun in the world. Um, but it, it then led me to being an angel investor where I would help these entrepreneurs who are going after old line industries using bleeding edge technology to attack, you know, the trillion dollar markets that exist. Let's talk about that fun stuff you mentioned. And specifically, I think you did this, this pre-pilot weapons of mass consumption and you built okay. a fire breathing pizza oven with the idea that you could cook a pizza in what, a minute without uh, using a microwave? No, we beat, we, we burnt a pizza in 30 seconds. Um, we actually had to turn it down. We had to, so we what had to exactly turn it did down you do? to make like, walk, walk me through this. How did, how did okay. this unfold? And Yeah, so it unfolded because I, I had become sort of obsessed with, you know, the democratization of access to building hardware, right? That you could get microcontrollers and Arduino and Raspberry Pi and Particle and all these devices that allowed you to build whatever you wanted to build at home. And as an engineer, I wanted to get my hands dirty, but what was I going to build? Well, I'm also a foodie. I love barbecue. I love pizza. I love ice cream. I love coffee. So I decided to start hacking and modding equipment and eventually building equipment from scratch. And since I was living in Los Angeles at the time, someone from, you know, the Food Network found their way to my house and so, said, so are you doing this TV show. Before you connected with the Food Network and they found out about you, where are you doing this? So you're doing this in your garage, you're doing it in your living room. How does that yeah. work? Yeah, it, I was doing it in my garage in my backyard. Uh, and I also had a, I was a member of a, of a makerspace in, in Los Angeles where I could do a bunch of stuff. And it was just hacking on stuff at home. And, you know, each of my things got more and more ridiculous. So I built a a, a smoker that was connected to Twitter that would tweet the temperature of the meat every five minutes so that I could leave my house for an 18 hour brisket smoke and just like look at my Twitter account and see when the brisket was done. Um, and the pizza oven was the pilot episode and weapons of mass consumption was a one and done episode because we decided that we were going to build the ultimate high speed pizza oven. And by using um, forced air into a wood fire. So it was still technically a wood fired oven because we wanted to be, you know, <laughs> we wanted to say, you know, Luigi's wood fired pizza oven. Um, but by forcing massive amounts of air in, uh, we were able to get the temperature oven up to, the temperature of the oven up to 1500 degrees instantaneously. So Holy that God. meant that we could cook a pizza in 45 seconds. However, we forgot to put on a safety switch so that when we opened the doors of the oven, the blowers would turn off. And so the blowers were still on and my co-host lost his eyebrows. So was this on was film? Was this filmed <laughs> yeah, it at was, the time? The yes, it was, deemed a, it, it was deemed a liability by the producers at the Food Network. Um, and uh, I was able to go back to my normal career of investing in tech startups. But it was, was a lot of emergency room visit as part of that. No, he had plenty of eyebrows to give up. It was okay. Okay. He was, okay. He was, but he was actually his girlfriend, his girlfriend appreciated it because when they were growing back, she was like, that's the length I want them. Keep them that length. Have you, uh, that's, that's, that's an amazing story. And maybe you could turn it into a different type of product given what you just said. But do you still have that video? I do. Okay. You cannot see it, Rob. You I'm not. It's it's technically owned by Lionsgate, I believe. So I I don't I, I do have a copy, um, and at some point we'll 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 upvert it to uh, 4K for everybody. But yeah, that's he he ended up wearing a welding helmet for the last half of the of the of the of the cook because he realized that he didn't want to lose more of uh, of the hair on his head. So you did this, and then you also wrote this book on where to drink coffee. And what I find particularly interesting about this is 
you know, actually, I didn't know about this until I was doing a little background research before the show today, that this is one of the eclectic things that, that you've, you've done. And it's not just any book. It's not just something that went out on, uh, you know, straight direct to Kindle, but it's a fade on book. It's a beautifully mm -hmm. bound book. Uh, how did that come about? So that's thick, one. Right? It's like two inches, three inches thick. Yeah, I mean, no, this it's... is not a tiny, tiny book. Yeah. So um, that summer that, uh, well, so during the year where I wasn't working, uh, my wife and I, or at the time girlfriend, drove cross country because we just wanted to explore. And one of the themes we had was we traded coffee beans from roaster to roaster from Los Angeles all the way to New York. And the idea was a friend of mine uh, had just won the World Barista Championship. I, it's a thing. There's actually a competition of who could be the world's best barista. And he had just started roasting his own coffee. And when I was at his shop, I said, hey, I'm going to, my first stop is Phoenix. Where should I go? And he said, well, go to Coffee Cartel, but bring them my coffee. I want the guy at Coffee Cartel to try it. So lo and behold, we drive to Phoenix. I hand them this bag and the guy at Coffee Cartel is so excited. He makes a list for me of other places to go in Phoenix and then asks me, where are you going next? And I said, oh, well, I'm going to Denver. He said, oh, bring bags of my coffee to my buddy in Denver. So all of a sudden I'm mewling coffee across the country from roaster to roaster. And each of them is making me a list of where are the best coffee shops in their city and the next city to go drink. So this unfolded before you did a book deal, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was doing this for fun. And then I get to New York and word gets around. I think it wasn't on that, that arrival at New York. It was a later arrival at New York. Um, and my, the chairman of my old firm is of CIM Group. His brothers are the founders of Apollo and Aries, which are two very large private equity firms. It's actually his brother-in-law, uh, Leon Black. Yeah, very large, very successful yeah. private equity yeah. firms, multi-billion dollar private equity firms. Correct, correct. And the, um, apparently at a dinner they were all at, mentioned that they had acquired Phaedon and were looking for interesting stories about food and food exploration. And Richard says, well, you need to call Avidan because he just did something crazy. He basically traded coffee beans across the country. And so I get a call from them and I'd known them for years through Richard. And they said, would you, would you be willing to document what you did and share the lists of all the best coffee places you explored as you went on this trip. And so Where to Drink Coffee was started with a compilation of handwritten lists of the best places to drink coffee around the world. How many cities had you visited on that first trip? You mentioned Phoenix, I think, and Denver. and Yeah, Phoenix, Denver, Kansas City, Louisville. I was probably like 15, 16 cities. Um, and then we continued to do that after that trip across the U.S., you know, we did it in Australia. We did it around Europe. We did it in Italy. It was actually terrible. I don't get me. I, actually, the worst reviews <laughs> of the book are, are people who are disappointed either that their favorite hometown coffee shop didn't get any love. Yeah, or, I was going to say, I bet you, you got some hate mail, didn't you? Oh, yeah. You must have gotten hate mail. my favorite place in Georgetown? I was like, I didn't go to, I, like, this isn't, it's not, the book is not called Every Place to Drink Coffee. <laughs> Right? <laughs> we've, we've just, we've just, we've tried to select the best. Um, but the other was just Italian. They were like, how could you snub Italy? How could you have more places in Iran than in Italy? And I didn't want to disappoint anybody, but Italy is not one of the top coffee places in the world right now. And it's actually an interesting historic, it, it, it comes from actually from World War II when the economy in Italy was severely impacted, um, the Italian government actually colluded with a couple coffee manufacturers and said, we will give you financial, um, uh, basically, we will, we will make your lives easier as a business if you help us change the lower, lower the cost of coffee. So they started import, importing Robusta beans and Robusta beans are the lower quality beans and they pitched this entire marketing pitch to change the palates 
of Italians to really like that flavor. And the, the, the marketing line was crema on your espresso thick enough to float a spoon of sugar. And so that thick crema came from really cheap beans that the Italian government wanted to provide so that people could start continue to drink coffee. And Italians have been stuck on drinking Robusta blended beans ever since and have so too much national coffee. pride. Yeah, because too much national pride. So, so we're going to have to break here in a couple minutes, but I, I, I did want to dig a little deeper on this. So how many cities did you ultimately end up visiting for the book? Oh, God, I lost count. At, at a certain point, we started recruiting friends to add to the list. So what we did was we reached out to the competitors in the World Barista Championship, and we said, hey, we haven't been to your city, but if you could make a list, what would it be? And my co-author on the book is one of the most prolific coffee writers in the country. And so she also reached into her network. And we really just, we reached out to coffee professionals saying, you know, where would you recommend? And the list was spectacular. To build it from there. So you really had this initial story. Then you had this serendipity that happened, which led into the, the book. I mean, that's a really interesting story. And to wrap on this, what did you learn about the best either entrepreneurial personalities or coffee shops? Like what made for a really good coffee shop in your opinion, not just the coffee itself, but the entire experience? Well, I think one of the interesting pieces that I learned when I was talking to these coffee shops, whether the operators of that coffee shop was that they didn't see it as a zero sum game. You would think that if you walked into a coffee shop and said, hey, tell me the other coffee shops that drink in, what's the best coffee shop in this city other than yours? If it were a zero sum game, they'd say, it's just me. I'm not gonna tell you any other places to get coffee. But the reality was exactly the opposite. It was this feeling the same way that entrepreneurs and startups think it's not me against the other startup. It's all of us against the status quo. And when I was talking to these entrepreneurs running coffee shops, they basically looked at it and said, if there's anybody left who hasn't experienced high quality coffee, my job is not done. The pie has not grown. And so I really think that it's something I've seen a lot with entrepreneurs. I've seen a lot of startups who have that mindset to say, I'm not here to take business away from another startup. I'm here to change the way that everybody operates. And to me, that was the really you know, enlightening part of it all. And I think that's what makes Silicon Valley and just tech in general a really great place to be is that you will find support from what seems to be a competitor um, because in reality, we're all fighting against that old, you know, stodgy status quo. So Avadon, we need to take a short break, but this is a great bridge to where we're going to come back, really jumping into Silicon Valley, what you found after moving up from LA and also where it's headed. So I'm Rob Conyvere. This is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm joined today remotely via Zoom. We're resuming our conversation that I was having with my guest, Avedon Ross. He is the founding partner of Root Ventures. And we were talking about, we were about to get into how he ended up in San Francisco um, and moved up from LA and why Root Ventures is based up there. Yeah, it, it was an interesting it was an interesting process to be honest with you. I thought originally when I was angel investing that I would angel invest anywhere. I would invest in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Denver, Austin. And lo and behold, I found myself going to San Francisco more and more. And we could talk about the gravity that San Francisco has, but it is it's got a pull. It definitely has a gravitational pull. And eventually I started finding myself there every week. You know, I would occasionally go to New York. I would occasionally go to Denver or Austin or Seattle or Portland, but it was, it almost became a regular occurrence to be in San Francisco. And by the time I had raised fund one, I had not, I had done nine investments on my own as sort of an angel with some friends. And I believe six of the nine companies were based in Silicon Valley. 
And that was a good indication to me that more and more and of it my just kind of happened. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it just kind of yeah, happened. I, you just you're like, wow, these are where the companies I like the most happen to be located. Exactly. And I think it has a lot to do with the type of investing we were doing because it was, you know, interdisciplinary engineering, people who really, really wanted to write, you know, write code or build hardware that was extremely complex. It just so happened that Silicon Valley had the strongest concentration. So I think today we're actually still at about two thirds invested in the, in the Bay area. And that one third is all over the place. But, uh, after coming back and forth from Los Angeles to Seattle, uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco weekly, my wife and I made the decision that uh, with two, two, with a kid and a second on the way, that I would rather live in the city with my family where I'm doing my work rather than yeah. be a commuting dad. We'd love to hear about how you have been thinking about building the firm and building the root brand. And one of the things that I always like mentioning to you, and, and we've talked about this in the past, is you have the, the world's most unique business cards. So maybe just talk about like, how are you building the firm, the brand, kind of the elements of it, you know, all the way down to the, and our, you know, the uh, kind of old tradition of the business card. So the business card is a printed circuit board. It is a PCB that is, um, you can snap off pieces of the PCB and it becomes a USB plug to power a software development kit called Particle, which is one of our portfolio companies and allows you to build a Wi-Fi microcontroller out of our business card. So, you know, what we were basically leaning on was the fact that we are deeply technical. We are all engineers. I have programmed with my business card. We have deep visibility and knowledge about the Chinese supply chain to the point where our business card out of a printed circuit board costs less than the paper equivalent because the paper supply chain hasn't progressed, whereas the circuit board supply chain has become extremely efficient. So for a couple pennies, we are getting 72 hour turned around circuit boards shipped from China um, as our business card. And, you know, to be honest, it's the blessing and the curse that that business card, in terms of our earliest, the earliest conversation pieces about Root Ventures are mostly about our hardware, our physical, tangible investments. People talk about the robotics investments we've done and the, the, the developer kits and IoT developer kits we've done. But when we talk about a lot of our software investing, people have a much harder time grasping, well, an agent-based modeling simulation tool or a implicit modeling CAD software package or like these software companies to the industries they service are extremely important. But if I were hanging out at a cocktail bar at a cocktail hour and I had to describe to somebody four or five investments that indicate what we do, they're going to immediately latch on to the physical tan. They're going to talk about the hamburger. Well, I think that's right? a human piece. That's a human thing too. People like to connect and think about physical, tangible objects. So even though Apple at the end of the day is a portal into all these other things, they still identify and like to talk about the phone as much as they talk about the applications on it. Absolutely. So, so what so we the did team, in terms oh, of ahead. team expansion, yeah, so that, that's what led us to think more about team and basically say, we should have team members that represent part of the deep tech thesis and embody them fully. So for our hardware, we brought on Chrissy Meyer. So Chrissy is amazing. So she's an electrical engineer by training, did her master's at Stanford and then went straight to Apple. She was at Apple for many years. She was the EPM on the iPod and then the Apple, the first Apple watch. So she built EPM out is, what is the EPM? engineering program manager. So she basically managed all the engineering um, for the Apple watch program. And that meant she spent a lot of time in China. It meant she spent a lot of time with interdisciplinary engineers from mechanical engineers to electrical engineers to manufacturing engineering. And she then from Apple went to go run hardware programs at Square and eventually uh, was part of the founding team at a company I believe you were invested in called Pearl. Um, in Santa Cruz. So a lot yeah. of the Apple. I mean, it, it ended up being a big disaster at the end of the day, but yes, but well, that, that it was, was full our, of that, brilliant people. It was really yeah. full of brilliant people. Which was great because then we were able to recruit her to join us. And when, if you are dealing with a tangible product that needs to be shipped, you are talking to Chrissy. She knows more about getting your product shipped than just about anybody in the continental United States who doesn't still work at Apple. And 
it, it made it abundantly clear that that's where our hardware investments were going. And on the other end of the spectrum, we recruited Lee Edwards. And Lee invests entirely in software, primarily in dev tools and the future of development. So he's focused on things like um, you know, APIs for adding uh, video chat into any application. So a company called Daily, which has been an amazing COVID, the tailwinds for that one on COVID have been tremendous. Um, companies like Hash, which is Joel Spolsky, uh, Joel Spolsky and David Wilkinson um, built a company that does agent-based modeling and simulation in the cloud. Companies like Meroxa and uh, Superconductive and just companies that are really built for software developers. And he was a CTO of Teespring and has managed many, many software engineers. Um, and so he, he doesn't look at hardware deals, but still fits into the deep tech universe for us. And then Kane is very much our industrial automation expert. So he runs an awesome, awesome Twitter handle called Machine Picks, which if you haven't yeah, seen- Yeah, you've got Picks, it on your website where you click through it and you just see these great pictures of all these unique machines. A lot of videos from what I saw as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it was animated animated uh, GIFs at first, and now it's it's short videos because the animated GIF is is a, is a pain. But it's basically hyper complex machining that make the most mundane and straightforward products. Like how does chain link fence get made? How do how do how do screws and and coat hangers get made? You know how does concrete get poured and the realization is that what we take for granted as consumers actually takes a lot of engineering complexity. What, what, I, what I find really interesting about this, and I think a lot of people don't realize with a lot of firms, is that you have people that are consistent with the strategy and the brand. And where we started today on the show is you were talking about how the key thing you look to do with the company after you back it is to remove the technical risk. And to do that, you really want to have a team that loves the technologies, loves how things work, along with the building companies, of course. So it has to be very consistent to put those pieces together. And I think you guys have built a really differentiated brand around doing that. Um, there's one other firm I wanted to ask you about to see if you could um, give me some information on this. And this is um, Falafel Ventures. Uh, could you explain the founding of Falafel Ventures and what Falafel Ventures is? Yeah, so uh, Falafel Ventures is a, it's a SPAC growth buyout rolling fund. No, I kid, I kid. Falafel <laughs> Ventures, Falafel, Falafel Ventures is a, a group of partners from different firms who get together to solve the world's problems over falafel and hummus. And it is a, a, a a, a, an investor from India, an investor from Pakistan, an investor from Palestine, an investor from Israel. I am the Israeli on, on, on Falafel Ventures, so it is Yeah, Bilal but then you have, you have Bilal, right? Bilal Zuberi. Yeah, so Bilal, Bilal Zuberi, uh, Samil Shah, Nabil Hyatt, and, and I. So that's um, Bilal, from, Bilal from Lux, Nabil from Spark, Samil from Haystack, and me from Root. And the way it started was we were all together at a conference in Los Angeles. Um, a venture conference. And having been from Los Angeles, I was so excited to go eat in LA, but we were eating this like rubber chicken, you know, no offense to the wonderful people that put on the, the event. And I looked at my friends and I said, you guys know that one of the best falafel joints in Los Angeles is like a five minute Uber ride away. And it was really more like a 15 minute Uber ride away, but I knew I could recruit them on the five minute number. And we basically spent two and a half hours at this falafel place, just talking about all the things that, it wasn't really just talking about business, it was talking about being a person in society during our time in Silicon Valley with entrepreneurship, being a father. You know, we had so much in common to talk about and we created this sort of quarterly meetup where we go out for falafel somewhere either in the bay area or in los angeles every year we go to the upfront summit we always go for falafel because we're all there um and we just catch up and talk about talk about life and it's been a, it's been a great group of friends to make and uh, you know we still do it over zoom today yeah i was going to ask about that how have you maintained that during zoom is everybody making their own falafel or yeah, so we are trying, you have to have a Middle Eastern uh, item in front of you at some, of some type. Um, but, but yeah, we've just been, we've been getting together, the four of us and continuing conversation. And, and honestly, my, the, the best part about it 
for me is it's non-transactional. You would think that, you know, at the end of the day, all four of us invest in the same exact areas. We love co-investing together. And as a matter of fact, I've co-invested with each of them on deals, but we never talk about it at Falafel Ventures, like at Falafel Ventures. I love saying that. Yeah. And you all During are our sort of investors too, or I guess Sunil yeah, maybe a little less, but all are willing to take on the, the deep technical challenges, not just the execution challenges. And they're all great people you would want. If you're building a deep tech company to have Nabil, Bilal, or Samil um, on your cap table is just a big win because they've been down that road. They also understand what technical risk looks like and why it makes the opportunity that much larger. So I want to talk about culture in, in venture capital a little more, but if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer. This is Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, and my guest today is Abedon Ross. He's on Zoom with me right now. He's the founding partner of Root Ventures. So you talked a little bit about how, how you've used Zoom to keep together this, this group of colleagues in the venture industry. What have you been doing to maintain culture within Root Ventures right now with the team that you talked about you've, you've pulled together over the last several years? Yeah, so it, it's been interesting to say the least. Um, so as the team of the four of us, we've been able to you know, continue our dialogues via Zoom and not feel like we've missed a beat because we've known each other for so long. What's been more difficult and, and required more work was bringing on new team members. So we also have an EIR, Ian Rust. He was the founding engineer of Cruise, uh, the autonomous car company. He joined us without ever meeting the team in person. And that was super interesting to bring somebody on board. Uh, but it's been great because we do everything over video. We have both partner meetings on Monday, but we also have a happy hour on Thursday afternoons where we get together and we don't have an agenda. We just catch up and talk about the week in general. Um, and we also brought on a summer associate uh, and Emily Henriksen was, she was a, at SpaceX for many years and then went to Harvard Business School and we've caught her between her first and second year to come join us. And being able to keep up a relationship that you've had for many years is something you can do via Zoom or on the phone. But building a new relationship was something we were very worried about. So we so just had to put do in that? a real considered yeah. effort. It's, but is it considered effort or is there something in particular that's different? So I think that you have to be able to eliminate some of the um, transactional elements of Zoom calls. Leave yourself room to catch up. Leave yourself room to ask, how was your weekend? We start out every call with things that you are excited about for this week and an appreciation and thank you to somebody for some help you received last week. And it just gives everybody that human element, right? The problem is, is when we're on Zoom, it feels like, okay, let's pull up the air table and like walk through the deals. We, we wanna catch up and hear about, you know, our, our teammates' lives. Like what's been going on? It's something you would have done if you were in person. So fast forwarding, how do you see this unfolding over the next six months, the next year, two years, culturally, both for Root Ventures and then I think for the San Francisco community? But I'd love to start with Root and how you guys are thinking about it. Do you have people working remotely? Is everybody in the Bay Area sheltering in place? How is it working now and how do you see that unfolding? Yes, yeah, so we're all in the Bay Area, although we've, we've given some, I've, I've basically created flexibility for anybody to move anywhere within the larger Bay Area. So Lee is actually living in Calistoga, which is about an hour and a half, uh, an hour and a half north of San Francisco. And the idea being, we could still get to the city for meetings where, you know, you want to take a walking meeting. I think what we're seeing is that San Francisco will still remain the epicenter of capital for technology startups. But at the end of the day, you may have people who are funding companies living wherever, and they'll be able to hop on Zoom with you. But I, I still believe that there is a, a gravity to being centrally located, but there is significant opportunity for people to open up shop elsewhere, open up a, yeah. a venture fund based in Austin or Seattle. Um, but it sounds like to a certain extent with what you're doing, you're encouraging people to stay in the Bay Area and stay proximate. And that's the kind of the larger bet is that's what will work and continue to work for Root Ventures to grow going forward post pandemic. 
Yeah, I think we are good. I, I would say California in general. I, I would, you know, we're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff in Los Angeles. We're seeing a lot of stuff. We have, so Emily is based in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, and she was there throughout the summer. And we didn't ask her to move to San Francisco because our take on it was she was within driving distance. So she drove up for our socially distanced partner meeting. We did one to the summer. Um, and, and that was interesting to do. But I think in general, uh, people will be able to start companies anywhere and everywhere. And I'm excited for that. I really am excited for what COVID has caused for the technology industry. You know, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's pulling forward customers. Customers now want startups and they want services and software. But it also means that an entrepreneur can get a company started and not worry about where are my 10 first employees going to be because now you have I, a remote work culture that works. Yeah, I do. I do wonder what will happen with California. And you mentioned that, you know, in your view, California will remain the epicenter of tech capital. And I really wonder whether that will be the case or not. And the reason that I say that is it's not because I moved to Seattle two years ago and, and I've been up here and I've seen another ecosystem. And it's really more a matter of the tax policies that I've heard about, and then you have the wildfires and you have a lot of these pieces that I'm personally shocked at how many people I know are seriously considering moving. And these are people in the capital world as much as the entrepreneurs. And when you have the legislature in California contemplating going to marginal rates of 16, 17%, you know, it sounds like it only hits billionaires and that sort of thing. But when you have people where you have concentrated gains in one year and basically you haven't made any money or not a lot of money for several years, you get hit hard. It's I've seen it driving a lot of people to think about it. And I've also seen on Facebook people, they had the moving van out in front of their truck and they're like, hey, I'm moving to Miami. I'm moving to Boise. I'm, and these are real examples I've seen of people that I never would have expected leaving the Bay Area. So when you couple that with venture funds that have been working remotely and you have a lot of partners that are working in low tax regions and culturally they've been working together by video conference, completely by video conference for a year, I feel like it's a discontinuity that's very, very different than what people have seen before with California. And then kind of put on top of that, um, you know, I think one of the secret, maybe not so secret advantages of the Bay Area has been weather. And then you have wildfire season and other stuff that, that makes it a difficult place to live for a month out of the year. I do wonder whether it really does remain the epicenter of technology capital or not going forward. Yeah, so it's, it, those are all very interesting and totally valid concerns. And I would say that it is not to say that Silicon Valley will remain head and shoulders above the next, right? What's the next city? New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, Austin, all of those are a distant second. And Boston, and so I think the, the, the real question is, is the, is the future that there is no epicenter and that everything is hyper-fragmented? Um, or is it that the epicenter is there, but now the tier two, the second place cities all rise up? And I do believe it's the latter. I am not a believer that hyperfragmentation is the long-term answer. I do believe that urban centers, once we have a solution for COVID, and I don't believe it's this year, I don't believe it's next year, and I don't, I, I, I'm not even going to give a forecast for when this all happens. But we, <laughs> right. we will. Nobody wants to forecast it anymore. Right. But we will, but we will have a solution. And, um, and, and, and my take on it is that the best entrepreneurs and the best companies are able to have in-person conversations that allow them to build on top of it, work extremely efficiently. And it may not be five days a week in the office. It really probably will not be five days in the week in the office. I think people are gonna to move to hybrid programs, but if you live in Boise, Idaho, you can't hybrid unless other people live in Boise or outside of Boise. And that's why I say California, because I think that in California, you're within a couple hours of one of the two biggest tech epicenters. So you could live you know, in, uh, in, 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 a, in a beach an hour and a half outside of Los Angeles proper, 
and do two to three days a week in San Francisco. You could also live in Lake Tahoe or you can live in Sonoma or Napa and you could be in San Francisco or you can live in Santa Cruz like my partner Chrissy does. And she's been doing this for years where she'll be in San Francisco two to three days a week, but she doesn't live in San Francisco or even really the Bay Area exactly. And I think that will still create, I think the geographic centers so, won't be as pinpointed so let's, let's as build on that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to build on that because for myself, one of the things that I had told aspiring entrepreneurs, very high potential, you know, kids coming out of college or people that want to join startups, that it was pretty easy decision to just move to the Bay Area. Just move to the Bay Area and you can't help but learn a lot about startups and have opportunities come your way. And what would be your advice today for people that they've taken a gap year, they're just getting out of college, et cetera. What do they do to break into tech and startups? And we've only got a couple of minutes here, but I'm yeah. just curious, how are you advising people today as they're thinking about getting started? Because, you know, in the yeah, near now term- Now you don't move to San Francisco. There is no, exactly to the point of like telling our summer associate not to move to San Francisco. The reality is, is the best benefit of San Francisco are the collisions. The number of people I've met at a coffee shop talking to them, sitting at the table next to them and seeing, you know, they start talking about some new framework that I'm intrigued by. I say, excuse me, I'm really intrigued by like what you guys are doing, what you're building on, you know, Meteor or what you're building on Node.js or whatever it might be. And so I think that today I wouldn't tell anybody to change their physical location, but I would say that Silicon Valley should remain their North Star where they're headed and they should be trying to build a network there because you're not building your startup for what today's problems are. You're building a startup for what two years from now will look like or five years from now will look like or 10 years from now will look like. And I still believe that cities around the US will remain those headquarters of thought leadership and thought for, for entrepreneurship. So it might not need to be Silicon Valley. You could do it in Seattle. You could do it in Los Angeles, but I wouldn't recommend, you know, headquartering in Bakersfield. No offense to Bakersfield. Well, Avedon, this has been a really fun conversation with you today. And, and thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And always for, great. Always great seeing you. And for people who want to keep up with you, where should they go? So I'm on Twitter at Avidon Ross. I am also pretty easy to get a hold of uh, through, through LinkedIn, through, you know, Instagram, wherever. And uh, follow Machine Picks. That's the way more interesting. Oh, yeah. All of my partners, okay. they're way more fun uh, online than I am. We're going to have to wrap, Avidon. Thank All you right, so thanks. much. And, and thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can check it out on demand on the SiriusXM app. And you can follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me at Rob Conybeer. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.